0: Today's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is it in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Tom. And good morning, everyone. Ah, So let's pray one more time as we get started. Lord God. This is your word. This is our story. This is the journey that we walk in of faith. I ask this morning, Lord God, that you would make your word not simply a book to study, but indeed a living document, something breathing, something that, Holy Spirit, you instill in us. You speak to us. And then we leave here changed not by rhetoric or by Uh, the feeling of being with people, but because we have encountered the living God. pray this in your name. Amen. Again, it's so wonderful to be with you. If you don't know who I am, my name is Steve Yates. I'm one of the pastors here at InTown. And this morning, if you haven't already opened your Bible, go ahead and open it to Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18, as Tom just read. We're going to get started right away and address an elephant in the room. Not necessarily in this room, but in uh, Philippians 2, 12 through 18, verse 12. Work out your faith, your salvation, with fear and trembling. This is one of those texts that if you uh, are not handling the Bible with care and it worms its way into your heart, you can... Let's get a little discombobulated because doesn't the Bible say in lots of other places that we, we don't follow some sort of works salvation thing, that we actually believe in grace? We believe in the mercy of God. We believe that God is the one who transforms us and then enables us to do good works. Why then would Paul be talking about us working out our salvation? It's important enough to address because, again, if you just pop your Bible open to this and you're not thinking in other places as well, you can just get twisted up. There really are, I don't know, dueling banjos, dueling philosophies in some ways of how to look at a biblical text. On one hand, we want you to care about context, who wrote it, who it's been written to, The fact that it's a unique book and a unique word to God's people. And at the same time, we also want you to care that, as Paul tells us, all of Scripture is God breathed. That Scripture is the inspired and inerrant work of God. It didn't come down to us um, in, you know, levitation form. But nonetheless, um, there's a unity behind the Word of God. On the one hand, we want you to be able to understand the Bible without a doctorate in New Testament. Jimmy Agin is not the only one in the room who's able to understand a Bible verse, even though he can read it in 27 different languages. On the other hand, guys like me, who almost failed his class in seminary, um, need to be able to respect the fact that there is depth to the Word of God. And we don't just take something at face value and say, okay, I have found my memory verse for this week. I've done my 22nd devotional for the night, and this must be what God's saying because it's right there. We have to balance these two things together. So we look at this passage and, and we have to say, well, doesn't Paul say different things in other places? He does. He actually says it right in the next verse. It is God who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. Back in the last chapter, he says, it is God who is working in you now, who has begun a good work in you and is going to bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. Back a couple more books, in the book of Ephesians, he says, he didn't save you by your good works, right? But it is indeed the gift of God inside of you. The good works are those things prepared by God for you to walk in, not a prerequisite for your salvation. So it cannot mean at face value that we are to somehow figure out our own salvation, to work it out, that we are somehow supposed to prove to God or reach an Olympic bar. What does it mean? Well, basically, we think through the idea of working out our salvation in the same way that we might say, flesh out or journey into, that we have been given salvation by God through Jesus Christ, and now we get to live it. Now we get to ooze into every little corner of it and figure out what it actually means in our hearts and in our lives. And indeed, it is for his good pleasure. That experience of you working, of you living out the Christian life, is a thing that glorifies God, not simply on a Sunday morning, but in every area of your life. We have to address that elephant in the room, because if we don't, we will not be able to understand any of the rest of the passage here. So really, the meat of the passage, isn't it, is in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. I hope you were here last week um, or got a chance to listen to uh, Jimmy's sermon last week uh, on the beginning of this chapter. If not, it's wonderful. I commend it to you. But I'd like to recap for just a minute because, indeed, because Scripture is a unity, passages connect with one another. We can't just dive into the end of Philippians and not believe that the beginning of Philippians has some bearing on it. Last week, Jimmy talked about uh, the beginning of Philippians chapter 2 and how it calls us to uh, not have selfish gain, selfish ambition, this thirst for control and power and the comfort that goes along with it that so often um, is indicative of our age today. Jimmy used an illustration. Man, see, he's not here, so I get to, I get to have fun with Jimmy today, apparently. Um, <laughs> he used an illustration that only Jimmy can use and at the same time was beautiful and wonderful because I might never forget it. He talked about hogs and how um, if you want to actually fatten hogs up, you do not give them two separate troughs with two separate amounts of food. No, you give them a gigantic trough With only a single hole, and you watch them fight over eating as much as they possibly can. Because apparently, and Jimmy would know, and some of you might as well, um, the alpha hog, the one who wins, the one who gets to the hole, isn't only going to eat his fill, he is going to eat as much as he can beyond being sick, not only so he wins, but so the other hog loses. There is this vie for control and power there in the hog pen, and so it is too with the world. But Paul says don't do that. And using this pattern that we've talked about before some, the indicative imperative, God never tells us to do something without also reminding us where the power is coming from within us, inside of us, to do the thing that God has told us to do. And here it's not just quick, it's over half the chapter. There's this beautiful hymn, the, the Christ hymn about Jesus, saying that Jesus, the only one with control, with power, with a claim to alpha status in the hog pen, if you will, Jesus denies that, gives all that up, not denying his, his divinity, but, but putting it aside in terms of of vie for glory and power and control. Why? Because of us. Becoming a slave. That bondservant language you might see in your Bibles is the word for slave for us. So we see the indicative imperative sandwich come back full circle. Now Paul is back to telling us things that we should do as the people of God. Now on one hand... Very, very easy for a sermon like this to be heard as just, oh, that's good, like proverbial advice, right? Don't grumble. Just like, don't be arrogant. Don't be ambitious. Don't grumble. Great. Okay, Paul, great. I'll file that in my moral center. But it's not just that. And this is why these parts of Philippians must remain married together. Because what Paul is actually addressing here is the fact that if we listen to Jimmy last week, If we listen to Paul, if we listen to the admonition to not be arrogant, to not be overly ambitious, to not go after self-control and power and the comforts that come along with that, on one hand, if we can do that individually, we're following Jesus. If we can do that corporately, then we start to look like Jesus as a body, and that's really, really cool. But just because we do that doesn't mean the rest of the world is going to do that. In fact, to take Jimmy's illustration a little bit further, in some respects, the beginning of Philippians 2 is telling us you're not going to be the alpha hog on purpose. To choose the path of Jesus, to walk in his way, is to not be the one getting to win, getting the control, getting the power having the the wonderful victory that comes with seeing ambition realized. No, we get to be the other pig. We get to be the other guy. And so here in verse 14 and following, what Paul is saying is, okay, if you work that logic out and you've chosen this path of Jesus instead, life is not going to be that easy for you. Comparative to everyone else who gets the opportunity to go not care and just run full bore after what they want with their life. We have to actually care about other people. We have to care about God. We have to, no, we get to care about those things. But we will indeed be affected by that shift in our mindset, in our worldview. And so Paul says, how do you deal with that? when you deal with that by not grumbling or complaining, disputing that we might be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, Paul is assuming he knows us. He knows himself. He knows that when times get rough, we get cynical and cranky and angry, and we want to complain about our situation. Unfortunately, the people of God have always been good at this. In fact, the language Paul is using here specifically, grumbling or disputing, and then again later, children of God in a crooked and twisted generation, that is language taken straight out of the Old Testament, straight out of the people of God, the Israelites, who unfortunately had this tendency over and over and over again to watch God do amazing things, and right after to find something to complain about. And then God would rescue them and they would find, see amazing things done again. And then they would find something to complain about and over and over and over and over again. So much so that they end up, instead of being separate from the peoples around them, they are the ones who are described as a crooked and twisted generation. And if you'd like to see that cycle, we don't have time to go through it, but it happens about, I don't know, 16 times or so in the book of Judges. That's the people of God for you. Our calling is to live in such a way that the world sees us not only make choices about our ethics differently, our way of doing business or our way of of trying to get ahead in the world, but also the way we deal with the suffering that results from those choices. Ultimately, the path of Jesus is a path of a cross, carrying a cross. He calls us to that. And so what Paul is saying then is that now that you are, in fact, Christian, carrying your cross, it is not your calling to then, while you are carrying your cross, complain about the splinters in your back. It is not your calling to be angry that the church is not providing water for you along your cross path. It's a given that this is going to be hard. So how do we deal with it together? That's the question. How do we deal with this together? Well, before I talk about how we deal with this together, let's talk about how not to deal with it together unfortunate patterns of the people of God that are not taken from the Old Testament but taken from the last hundred years or so of the church which is what our church looks most like just in how it's been shaped and whatnot. Over the last hundred years or so the church has really reacted to the suffering that comes along with being the church I believe in one of four ways. Number one we um, are not complaining about our suffering in the sense of, um, hey, we want it to stop, but rather, we want, it, we want people to notice it. We wanna shame the culture around us into stopping what they are doing by telling them how bad they are and showing how awesome we are for enduring them. I don't know about you, but um, if you've ever been in a family situation where you have a sibling That really, really bugs you, making them feel worse about bugging you usually does not work. I am watching this play itself out from time to time with my five children. The tattler never wins. Ultimately, the church often does this. We use our suffering um, as a marker, a work, if you will, um, of our salvation. It doesn't go so well. I mean, really, when you think about it, the world is the world. People who don't believe in Jesus don't believe in Jesus. I don't know why we are surprised that they act like people who don't follow Jesus. Further, I don't know why we're surprised that when we say, hey, you're not following Jesus, and they're like, yeah, we know. That's why I'm I'm not believing the same thing you're believing. They're not appalled by that fact. They're not surprised by that fact. It doesn't work out. A second thing we do, unfortunately, is we we tend to live our suffering out with vengeance. It's not just a, hey, I want to shame you into not following Jesus. It's that tattler, what I I might call, as I think of one of my children in particular, um, tattling with an edge. So there's tattling, daddy, daddy, so-and-so hit me. And then there's tattling with an edge which is, so-and-so hit me, what are you going to do about it? There's an implication there, right? Sometimes the tattling is just, I am hurting and I am complaining and I want it to be known. But other times it's, something bad is happening and I want you to do something about it. Now, there's actual biblical precedent for that. Many, many places in the Psalms, There are admonitions for God to do something about injustice. And there are names given. God, do X to these people. God, do Y to these people because of what they are doing to your people. But you notice those words are always communicated to God. They're not normally communicated to the people doing the wrong. That is left for a prophetic voice and none of us are prophets or sons of prophets Functionally, when one of my kids says, Daddy, Daddy, so-and-so bit me, what are you going to do about it? What they're wanting me to do is to walk with them to the offending child, and they want to watch me punish the offending child, and they take a sick pleasure in watching me then um, vindicate them. As the church, we want to do the same thing so often. Not only do we feel hurt by the world and frustrated that we don't get to live our best life now because we have a twisted view of what that means. Rather, we want to see God punish, all these horrible people who do so many things, this culture who's so against the church. God, do something, and we're going to sit back and watch, and then we get to take our place at the front of the line when they get beat up on. Again... It's like we're grumbling without grumbling. I think a third thing we can do is we can baptize cynicism. We can functionally see cynicism um, as, as a value, as a virtue. Uh, I don't know about you, and this is one I, I really do need to confess quite often and probably to you, to some of you in particular, individually, but there are times that I feel like I can wear my cynicism as maturity. I can wear my cynicism as critical thinking skills or as being well-read. That there's this perspective that, oh, I'm not, I'm not grumbling. I'm not complaining. I'm analyzing. I'm providing commentary. I'm leading. No, we're simply complaining and grumbling with bigger words. That functionally, we can see the The rough edges, the difficult things we've had in our lives as markers of uh, and scars of a life that is hypothetically lived again with boldness. We can boast in how much we've suffered for the gospel. Well, Paul is going to, don't want to. take his thunder too much in the coming weeks, but Paul's going to flat out say he's got all of you beat and it doesn't help. Functionally, we are not people who have suffered a lot. In fact, I love reading um, accounts from the church. I don't love. I am moved by and changed by accounts from the church around the world who are in fact suffering for the gospel in very brutal ways and what is so amazing is the lack of cynicism, the lack of anger, the, the deep well of mercy that many of these brothers and sisters in China and in India and in um, places in Africa that I'm thinking of that it, it, f- I would expect. Everything from them. They are the ones who can have the diatribes about horrible governments, and they are the ones who can have diatribes about um, nations and entire religions being against them, and instead, they show me Jesus. It blows my mind. And last but not least, I can think we, we, can, we can just caveat this away. Again, and this is a, a hint in many of these other things too, but But I often can think of ways in which, again, I'm not grumbling. I am simply uh, being a little ambitious. I'm not going for control. I'm trying to help people. I'm not looking for comfort. I'm just doing self-care. The things that are happening in Philippians 2, we, we figure out ways of living as 21st century Western people who have a little bit of Christian dust sprinkled on top of us rather than actually being the real countercultural people that the Word of God calls us to be. Now, I'm gonna show you how the sausage is made for a second. I reached this point in my sermon, in my sermon writing. Um, Everyone writes sermons a little bit different um, and everyone, even between sermons, writes things a little bit different, but I was writing my sermon and I reached this point and because pastors are pastors and we talk for a living, um, I started going, I don't know where to go from here. So I started practicing. And I realized that um, I, I used that phrase at the beginning of this sermon, the elephant in the room, without thinking about it. So what did I do? I looked into the rich history of the idiom of an elephant in the room. Turns out, In 1814, it was coined by Ivan Krylov, who was a Russian fablist, that used to be a job, now we just call them cartoon makers, Um, a Russian fablist named Ivan Krylov, who had gone to a literary event that was hosted by one of the Russian royal family. And the Russian royal family members stood up and at this great huge banquet praised Russia for having the top three fabulists in the world, and he named these three men off, and none of them was Krylov. Despite Krylov believing that he was pretty much awesome, and despite him having the sales of his fables to possibly have a case for that. So what does he do? Like any good fablist, he writes a fable about it, and his fable was entitled The Inquisitive Man, and in this fable, a man goes to a museum. He has a great time, and at the end of going to the museum, he meets up with a friend of his who's also attended the museum in the past, and the friend says, oh, what did you see? And the man is just just beaming, you know, like if you've ever been to something you've really wanted to go to forever, and you've finally seen it, and it's just awesome, oh, yes, yes, I, I spent so long looking at these incredible gems and these, um, these wonderful bugs, and, and the other friend has also seen it, and they're getting into it with you, and so they're saying, oh, yes, yes, did you, see, did you see the collection of bones? Yes, did you see this? Did you see this? Did you see this? And they go back and forth forever, and then finally the friend says, and did you see the, the elephant? And the man says, what? The elephant, the, the gigantic stuffed elephant, the, the elephant, the crown jewel of the exhibit. And he is flabbergasted. The man had spent so much time looking at the minutia, the details, all around the edges of the museum that he had missed the gigantic stuffed elephant that actually did exist in a Russian museum there in Moscow Completely, to the extent that he didn't even know it was there. The reason I bring that story up is because we now use the idiom, the elephant to the room, to mean something that is important, but really a hurdle, something that we have to get past, something that's blocking our way. We might, we might almost more accurately say the elephant in the door, the elephant um, that is, you know, blocking the passageway. Because we almost always use it like we have in this sermon right here. we got to address it, we got to deal with it, but then we get on to the real work. Now we get on to the real thing, now that the distraction is gone. But in Krylov's original usage, the elephant was the point. Friends, what struck me about this passage today bit of, of personal, personal walk with Jesus is that I so quickly want to get past work out your salvation with fear and trembling because I'm afraid people like you, people like me, we will, we will miss it. We will um, take it as work salvation. We will get trapped in this idea that we have to please God somehow, all important conversations. But it is the point do all things without grumbling or disputing, is work. It is not work that God has not empowered us to do. It is not work that God does not, in fact, intend his people to do. It is not work that he says, oh, i got to work on this. That must be like a B-list church at best. I'm going to go over here and have my presence fall on this place instead. It is a part, if not the one of, one of the primary parts of our relationship with God in this world. But I wonder, I wonder here, friends, you know, we're a, we're a southern culture church and we're a somewhat introverted, somewhat peace-filled family church. And so at the end of the day, most of the time, you guys don't complain about each other openly because we're not that kind of people. There's sort of like a southern shame that goes with, you know, the person standing up in the middle of the dinner and calling somebody else out. You don't do that. You just don't come back to dinner the next time. Or you secretly say, I'm not going to make my favorite corn casserole for that dinner next time or or something like that. I don't know how it plays out for you, but I know for me, believing Jesus is doing something and praying for him to do something. When I am annoyed with you, just like when you are disappointed with me, actually in some ways, it's exactly where God wants this church to be. He does not want us at a place of unity where we are just all holding hands and singing kumbaya, and you know, there, there's, there's, there's nothing wrong even in the places in Scripture where where the church is described as having one mind, as being in unity together. Those passages literally are only chapters away from other passages that talk about the church having great difficulty dealing with being of many different cultures or coming with different theological perspectives or dealing with varying socioeconomic places. I believe, friends, that what the, church, what, what the church is called to be, what who we are called to be, is a place where we are able to be messy humans together because of the gospel. We're able to be messy humans together in a way that does not hide our mess, that does not shop out our mess to other people so that we can be you know, nice and put together for church. No, this is a place where God has called messy people together to change them. And when messy people come together, messy people annoy each other. Messy people throw up on each other. Again, five kids. I know, some of you have warned my kids throw up. Messy people are inconvenient to other messy people. And so because of that, if we are being who God wants us to be, we are not going to be a happy, shiny church that runs like a beautiful business organization that is climbing the Dow Jones. We are not going to run like a place that, that has met all of your needs and approaches you with a brochure and says, this is the perfect place for you, please come this way to our spa. It's not going to be that place. But this is going to be a place where you're known. And it will be a place where you're loved. Not because we somehow have found a magic way to do that. No, we're going to screw you up just like all the other churches do. And I don't know if you've had maybe a hope that, oh, I'm trying in town again or I'm trying a new church again because of COVID, I get a restart button. No, we're going to screw you up just like we did two years ago. (sighs) But you're going to meet Jesus here just like you did two years ago. We are going to be a place, God calls us to be a place, where we are perpetually doing the work, empowered by Jesus, of pushing back against our own darkness and our mess, and doing that in community with our brothers and sisters, repenting to them, confessing our sin openly, not being afraid of their sin. And in so doing, we not only deny the hog life, we deny the desire to get what's ours and live our best life, live our truth and be number one, but we also deny the martyred life, The life that says we are still focused on ourselves, just now focused on how bad we're doing instead of good. We end up just not being focused on ourselves at all. And when we're not focused on ourselves at all, we get to focus on Jesus. And when we're not focused on ourselves at all, we get to see the hurting people around us. And we get to see them like Jesus sees them. Paul calls us today, Jesus calls us today to a life that is actually walking in the pattern of Jesus who denied himself but then didn't care about the denial, the glory, but took up his cross, took up the the, the identity of a slave, and then remember the end of that passage. And then it was God who said, Now all glory will be given to my son and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It is up to God to make in town, whatever in town should be. But for us, we're going to walk in the way of Jesus in all of our mess, working the good work that God has intended for us and empowered us to work, to not grumble, to not complain, to live life together, as he wants us to live. Let's pray. Lord God, as always, chief of sinners, praying to you, I know right at the end of this, I will begin to criticize my own sermon. And I don't know if someone's in here who's coming back for the first time and who doesn't, know what we're doing or, or like what we're doing here with COVID or maybe there's somebody who's coming back and goes oh man they came back too or maybe they're just people who are so excited to be here and they're not thinking about any of this at all but six months down the road they remember that we are all real people I don't know but Jesus I know you gathered 12 disciples around you who were as messy as they come and you loved them, and you saw them for who they were, and you remained with them anyway. God, I, I long for that, and I thank you, I thank you, I thank you that you have promised that, to always be with us, not only in some great, mighty, until the end of time, suffering way, but in, in the quiet moments or we read a Facebook comment, or we hear a rumor, or we just see somebody we don't like, you are there with us. And you are building up your church, Jesus, one person at a time. Thanks for inviting us to be a part of that journey. Pray in your name. Amen.